Underground Christian Network. Welcome to Test All Things. Test All Things is an outreach of Tower to Truth Ministries, and I'm your host, Fran Sankey. You can find us on the web at www.towertotruth.net. Test All Things is a Bible discernment, evangelistic program. It's dedicated to creating an awareness of and biblical answers to false religious teachings opposing Christianity today. Today we'll begin a series on cults. Not so much one cult in particular, but a general overview of them. Maybe call it Cults 101. The ministry behind this radio show started out as a counter-cult ministry, and it still is one. I felt a need to go back to basics and cover some foundational aspects of the ministry. As we'll hopefully see, knowledge of cults is extremely important today. Some questions we'll cover are, what is a cult? What makes a group cultic? What kind of person joins a cult? What is the difference between a cult and the occult? What do cults believe about God and Jesus? And how can we protect ourselves against falling prey to a cult? I'll also be giving you a mathematical formula to test a religious group to see if they're a cult. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word cult. Some images in your mind might be of devil worshippers. How about glassy-eyed people with painted smiles selling flowers on the street corner? Harry Krishnas with ponytails dancing around in circles. How about people chanting mantras over and over? Maybe you think that anyone who knocks on your door with a religious agenda is a cult. How about Charles Manson, Jim Jones? Well, the word cult is a scary word, and it should be. But did you know that the word cult originally wasn't a negative word? The word cult comes from the Latin word cultus and originally carried the meaning to worship or give reference to a deity. So, originally, the term cult can be applied to any group of religious believers, Southern Baptists or Mormons, Presbyterians or Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, Hindus, Muslims. However, as words change over the years, the word cult wouldn't be applied like this anymore, but means something else. Now, before we start defining words, we have to distinguish between world religions and cults. They are different. The three main world religions are Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. We also have Hinduism and Buddhism as prominent world religions today. These are not cults. They aren't all true, of course. Only Christianity is true, but none of these is a cult. However, there are cults within these religions. For example, a cult of Islam would be the Nation of Islam, led by Louis Farrakhan. A cult of Hinduism would be the Hare Krishnas. This ministry, Tower to Truth Ministries, concentrates on exposing and evangelizing the cults that would fall under the broad banner of Christianity. However, as we'll see, these are not Christian groups, but only masquerades, sometimes very cleverly, as the genuine article. Sometimes they're referred to as non-Christian cults. Now, you also don't want to confuse the word occult with the word cult. The occult is unlike a cult in that the word occult means hidden or hidden from view and deals with attaining supernatural knowledge, power, and ability through things like magic, tarot cards, communication with the dead, seances, Ouija boards, fortune-telling, astrology, etc., etc. You know, the current rave, Harry Potter, deals with issues of the occult, and although I haven't read the books personally, it is a dangerous thing to put into ha the hands of your kids. Now, I don't think that every kid who reads Harry Potter is going to end up joining a witch's coven or being a Satanist, 
But it plants seeds in impressionable minds that desensitize them to the occult. I think that can also lead people away from Jesus Christ as it fantasizes the power of the occult and turns their focus inward to their own power on what they can do, what they can achieve, and turns them away from the power of Jesus Christ. Isn't that Satan's big trick? You know, get people to look inward, to think that they can call their own shots. They can make the rules. They have the power within to achieve and become something special. What did he say in the garden? For God knows in the day you eat of it, you will be like him. The same lie happens today. Okay, with that groundwork laid, let's try to define the word cult as it relates to our purposes today in the realm of Christianity. A good definition of the word cult would be any group that distorts, perverts, or deviates from orthodox Christianity. Let me repeat that again. That would be any group that distorts, perverts, or deviates from orthodox Christianity. Walter Martin, the late counter-cult expert, defined a non-Christian cult as a group of people centered around someone's interpretation of the Bible, all the while claiming to be Christian, yet denying one or more of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, does that mean that if my church teaches the rapture will happen before the tribulation, and your church teaches the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation, that one of our churches is a cult? What if your church teaches that tongues are for today, but my church teaches they ceased? Is one of our churches a cult based on these standards? No. Again, a cult will pervert, deny, or distort an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Before we talk about essentials of the faith, what are some non-essential teachings? Tongues. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Eschatology, the timing of end-time events. Millennial versus all-millennial theology. These are non-essential doctrines of the faith. And we should give liberty to those who believe differently than us. Now, I'm not saying that these are not important issues. These are issues that we can have a solid conviction about, but they're hot topics. They've been around for centuries, and there are good Christian men on both sides of the fence. So, with that said, what are some essential teachings of the Christian faith? Those teachings that define our beliefs and that we cannot hold different views without taking us outside the realm of orthodoxy. The Trinity that there is one God manifested in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The deity of Christ, Jesus is fully God and fully man. The virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the atonement, the second coming, salvation by grace through faith apart from works, the inspiration of the Bible as the word of God, how about the personality of the Holy Spirit. These are all teachings that are integral to what defines Christianity. These are orthodox established teachings that have been tested, agreed upon, and taught through the centuries as truth. You know, can I challenge you? Do you know how to defend these doctrines? Do you know where to find them in your Bible? Or would you be clueless to defend them when you get an unwanted visitor at your door next Saturday morning? Oh, they have their proof texts all right. Now, I'm not saying this to shame you if you answer no, but to motivate you to search the scriptures for yourself and find the answers. You know, you might not be able to memorize where everything is, but write them down. Have them handy in your Bible for when someone comes around challenging you on these issues, and they will come. Oh, well, doctrine is boring. You know, I'll leave that to my pastor to know. Who will protect me? I just want to love people and raise my hands during worship. Hey, you know, it's great to love people. 
It's great to worship God. Jesus said that love is the way that the world would know who we are. But he also said to beware of false prophets. He said to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, to take heed that no one deceives you. You know, if you could ask the hundreds of people who died under Jim Jones in South America by drinking poisonous Kool-Aid, ask them if doctrine is important. They'd say, oh, yes. If you could ask if doctrine is important to the parents of a child who got caught up in the Jehovah's Witnesses and chose to die rather than to submit to a life-saving blood transfusion, they'd say, oh, yeah, doctrine is important. How about the 30-plus people of Heaven's Gate UFO cult? They committed suicide in California in the late 90s because they thought that a spaceship was coming to take them to the level beyond human. Ask them if doctrine is important. You see, what you believe will determine how you live, how you think. Who God is to you will make all the difference in the world. A wrong view of doctrine can lead to an eternity of woe and dread. You need to know what you believe and why. Your pastor can't come over and protect you every time you need him there. You are responsible to learn for yourself. You're accountable for yourself before God. And if you're a pastor out there listening, you need to teach doctrine to your church on a regular basis. There are tons of cults out there, and they want your members to join them. By the way, how many cults are there anyway? Well, estimates are that there are well over 3,000 cults today. And by the time this message is over, maybe one more cult would have been born. Now, some cults are theological in nature, and some are more sociological. That is, some sects are branded as cults because they theologically deviate from Christianity. Some, however, may be more in tune with the standard teachings of Christianity, but exert strict rules, strict regulations on their members to live by. These would fall into the sociological camp and can be just as dangerous. Many are very legalistic and press their members to go out and bring in new converts to the church. There are groups who place an older member on you that you have to get approval from about the things like who you can date, how much you can work, how much time can I spend studying my schoolwork, and yes, even what is appropriate sexual behavior with my spouse. That brings me to another topic. Who joins a cult? Who is susceptible to joining a cult? Who do they target for recruitment? You probably think that nobody in their right mind would, right? Well, maybe the young, the weak, the sick, those who are not well-educated. No. If that is your view, toss it out the window. Although cults can and do go after these groups, this is not the only group targeted. It's not even just unbelievers and the worldly people they're after. Estimates are that over 70% of current cult members came out of a Christian church or a Christian background. Now, were all these people born-again, blood-washed Christians? No. But think about this. Who does the Bible continuously warn about falling victim to false teachers? Unbelievers, right? Wrong. Christians. The Bible was written to Christians. The cults, we're told, will spring right up out of the church. Peter said this in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. He said, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And who will follow them, you asked? Glad you asked. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Now, I expressed my concern once to a woman whose daughter was going to a Seventh-day Adventist church. She said, oh, don't worry. No, they're not a cult. They have lots of members. Hey, 
Peter said that many will follow them, not a few. Jude 3 and 4 says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had the right to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. These are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Next week, I'll talk more about what makes a cult a cult and the people who join. I'll also give some examples of cults to avoid. We're picking up today from last week when we began a series on cults what they believe, who they are, why they are dangerous, etc. We began last week by saying that there are several world religions like Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, which are not considered cults. The focus of this program is to focus on the non-Christian cults, that is, those sects that masquerade under the banner of Christianity but are in reality deviant from Orthodox Christian beliefs. I defined a cult last week as any group claiming to be Christian that distorts perverts, or deviates from Orthodox Christianity. I also said that cults will, will deviate from the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. There are issues within Christianity that we can debate about and give the other side liberty to differ. And there are issues that we cannot differ without moving ourselves outside the realm of Orthodox Christianity into great danger. Last week I mentioned some of those essentials. The Trinity was one, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, etc., I also said that there are well over 3,000 cults on record today, with more growing almost daily. We left off talking about the types of people that cults will target to convert. The stereotype is usually, usually those who are unbelievers, sick, lonely, undereducated people. I said if you hold this view, you can chuck it out the window. The Bible repeatedly warns Christians, not unbelievers, about falling prey to false teachers. Jesus said to his disciples, those who were closest to him, to take heed that no one deceives you. Peter said the false teachers would be right among the Christians. Unfortunately, false teachers and cult leaders don't wear name tags identifying themselves as agents of Satan, nor do they advertise to attract people who are eager to be deceived. They also want to be with the persons who are interested in spiritual things. Hey, that means you. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that they are wolves dressing in sheep's clothing. They look like the real deal, talk the Christian talk, and seem like they're right on board with us. Contrary to popular opinion, cults often recruit the most intelligent and idealistic people they can find. That's right. Dummies aren't the only ones who join cults. In fact, the Mormon church is a great example of a cult with some brilliant people following it. They have members in government, TV, radio, Fortune 500 companies. I heard that the cult led by David Koresh in Waco, Texas, remember them, called the Branch Davidians? They had a Harvard Law graduate in it. Why would a cult want the educated people, you ask? Well, why not? Who can do a better job of promoting your work and advancing its cause than the smart, eager, and enthusiastic people of the world? Remember, you can be the smartest guy in the world, but if you don't know the real Jesus, you're very susceptible of being deceived when the counterfeit comes along. May I suggest that the most powerful weapon to avoid deception is to know the real so well that you can spot the counterfeit. At banks, they train tellers to spot a counterfeit by doing what? Looking at counterfeits, right? Wrong. By looking at real money. So when a counterfeit is placed in front of them, they can spot it a mile and a half away. Now, 
Much of the material that follows today is going to be general principles that cults will often fall into or typical behavior that they'll exhibit. Since there are so many cults with so many differing beliefs, not all cults will fit into all the criteria I present, but much will be in common. So, what draws people into a cult? Why would someone join a dangerous mind-controlling group? Hey, what if I told you that I was involved in a group of people who are dedicated to bringing world peace? or dedicated to following the true first century teachings of Jesus, or that our group is aimed at feeding the starving people of the world. Sounds noble, doesn't it? And it is. Think of of an idealistic, young, and enthusiastic college-age person who is sick of the inconsistencies of the world and wants to be a part of something real. People also join a cult for the feeling of togetherness, They've had a close-knit family feeling. You're often love-bombed when you first attend their meetings, giving you a sense of the great love that exists in the group, and you think you've met the best people in the world who finally understand you. I can tell you that it's usually not, almost always not, the doctrines of the group alone that lure people in. The teaching is usually not the big hook for most people. In fact, if the Mormons came to your door with their full gospel presentation right up front, you would never join. And they know that. That's why they offer to bring you a Bible at first. They get their foot in the door. Then they plant a Book of Mormon in your hands, telling you that your family can be sealed together so that you'll be united and live forever together in heaven. Wouldn't you want that? Sure you would. It isn't until weeks later that they start to reveal their strange gospel of how men can become gods, how their works-oriented salvation plays a part, and all the other strange and wild doctrines that Joseph Smith taught. In most cults, the honeymoon feeling you get when you join is almost always temporary, and when reality sets in, the person often crashes and finds himself running wild with endless works in a closed box with no way out. How about some marks of a cult? Well, a huge mark of a cult is that they'll strip you of your former identity. How do they do this? Well, some cults even take your clothing away from you and replace it with cult clothing. This will strip you of your identity and conforms you into the group mentality of the sect. One group that did this was the Heaven's Gate cult. When the 30-plus people of this UFO cult were found lying dead in a house near San Diego, California in the late 90s, they all had the same clothes, the same haircut. They were all wearing the same color tennis shoes. Some groups change the person's name, giving them a new name that adheres to the cult's philosophy. Some require a person to give their bank accounts over to the cult, move hundreds of miles away from friends and family, or even drop out of school. The Unification Church is a great example of this. They even replace your real parents with Reverend Moon and his wife, who are referred to by people in their cult as their true parents. Some cult leaders will violate the marriages of the members, taking the men's wives for themselves like Jim Jones did. Dangerous cults will also use mind control on its members. It comes in several forms. Perhaps the group will use information control. Try to monitor everything you read. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, commonly referred to as Jehovah's Witness, they're a great example of this. They teach that only 144,000 people are able to accurately interpret the Bible for the other sheep. That means you. The leadership then keeps the members bombarded with with its own publications, explaining the Bible for them. So they have little to no time to read anything else. For example, the Watchtower and the Awake magazines, the two biggest magazines that they promote, come out twice per month each. 
Plus, they have extra books, extra magazines that are required reading. So much time is spent preparing for the next meeting that this leaves little to no time to read anything that might help them to think outside of the box they're in. And as you might guess, this leaves little to no time to read the Bible by itself. And when the Bible is read, it's usually read and interpreted with the aid of a Watchtower magazine right next to it. There's also behavior control that cults use on people. They'll keep members so busy with the things of the group that they have no time for other things, especially things that would enable them to learn that the group they're in is dangerous. When you're in a cult, you don't have time to be bored. They'll often keep members so busy that they don't have any time for themselves. The Unification Church, called the Moonies, referred to as the Moonies, is a good example of this. Members are usually out early in the morning selling flowers, fundraising, and come home late at night with little sleep. Many Jehovah's Witnesses go to meetings three times a week, then they go to a book study once a week and are headed out on door-to-door activity every weekend. Mormons are very busy people. I heard a man in Utah say that his Mormon neighbor drives up her driveway at 60 miles an hour and backs out five minutes later going 70. The cult will often use thought control also on its members, depriving them of independent thinking. The vocabulary of the cult is often unique to the group, teaching them to all think together and and alike. This not only gets them to think alike, but makes them feel special as part of an elite group and puts up a wall between them and the people outside the cult. Another clever thing many cults do is to train people to block out all info that is critical of the group or its leader. That's why it's so hard to reach a person in a cult. They're not open to reason or hearing anything that would be critical or oppose their beliefs. Any negative attack or statement is usually viewed as a satanic attack on the truth of their group. I remember once five or six years ago when I was working in an apartment, a Jehovah's Witness came knocking at the door and she offered me her material and I declined and pulled out a track out of my pocket and offered it to her. And man, you never saw a woman make a beeline out of there so fast. She almost ran up the street to meet her friends. You know, I think the biggest danger of a cult, other than teaching you lies that will damn you to hell, is to take away your personal freedom. Members will often exhibit a radical personality change once indoctrinated and become dependent on the group and its leader. They often become very cynical of the world and other churches especially. They're usually warned about disagreeing with the teachings and practices of the group and aren't allowed to express their opinion. Opinions don't count when you're in a cult. The Watchtower, who is again heading up the Jehovah's Witnesses, calls itself the faithful and discreet slave of Matthew 24. Jesus spoke of that. And they wrote this in their Watchtower magazine, uh, December 1st, 1981, page 14. They said, What is your attitude toward directives from the faithful and discreet slave? Loyalty should move you to be ready to obey. You know, cult members must often even seek permission to do things that we take for granted. Going on a date. Going to a social event or out to a restaurant. How they spend their time in general. Again, questioning doctrine is a no-no. Buying personal possessions is no longer in your control in many cases. And again, not all cults do all these things. Some are more severe in their control tactics than others, but all try to maintain a tight rein on its membership in some ways. A final mark of the cult is that there is no legitimate way out. Once you're in, you're told you're in for good. There is no way you can gracefully leave the organization you're in. 
Those who dare to leave cults are marked as apostates, evil people, selfish, heretics, and they're usually shunned. And you can't just go, if you're in a cult, you can't just go and say, you know, I want to spend some time alone in prayer. I, I need to hear a word from the Lord. No way. To leave or even consider leaving the group is the same as leaving God and will end in your destruction, you're told. By this manipulative, the cult leader will pressure people to stay by using fear as a weapon against them. You know, if, if you leave us, you'll be tormented by Satan. If you leave, you'll be annihilated by God on Judgment Day, or your family will be hurt. Now, this is scary stuff. We need to have compassion on those trapped in cults and pray that God will use us to help the person see the truth that Jesus Christ can set them free. Next week, we'll learn a mathematical formula to help us to identify if a group is a cult. Today is part three of Cults 101. So far, we answered questions like, what is a cult? Why are cults attractive to people? Who joins them? We also looked last week at some of the marks of a cult and how they use mind control and manipulate people to be dependent on their group, making exiting from the cult extremely difficult. I started out by saying that a non-Christian cult is any group claiming to be Christian that distorts, perverts, or deviates from Orthodox Christianity and the essential doctrines of the faith. Essentials are things like the Trinity, the Resurrection, the Virgin Birth of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith apart from works, the inspiration of the Bible, and the Second Coming. It's also notable that many cult leaders started out within the parameters of Orthodox Christianity before radically deviating from it. For example, Joseph Smith, who is the founder of Mormonism, he was a member of a Protestant denomination before his alleged visit by the angel Moroni, telling him of some gold plates buried in a hill near Smith's home in Palmyra, New York. Charles Russell, founder of the International Bible Students, known today as the Jehovah's Witnesses, he was part of the Adventist movement of the late 1800s, who were zealously awaiting the Lord's return, as was Ellen G. White, who became the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know, all this didn't catch God by surprise. As it already says in 1 John chapter 2, 18 and 19, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Then verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Sadly, knowledge about cults is minimal to zero among most Christians today. Most Christians have no idea how to defend their beliefs with a Jehovah's Witness at the door or a Mormon missionary peddling the false doctrines of Joseph Smith. Teaching about cults is often neglected by pastors, so when the cults come to our doors, some of us are easily deceived and shaken by what appears to be some special knowledge from God that was never taught to us or a unique revelation that was given exclusively to a favored group of people. The Bible says you only need to be ready to defend your faith two times. How do you like that? Yep, two times only, in season and out of season. Hey, that means always. I challenged you before and I'll do it again. You need to be ready for your Saturday morning visitors. You need to know where to turn in your Bible to defend the Trinity, to defend the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection from the dead, salvation by faith apart from works. Cults usually rehash the same old heresies over and over again. 
So if you're familiar with the basics, you'll be able to handle most of the standard errors of the cults and hopefully plant seeds of doubt in their minds that will eventually help them get out of the cult into new life through Jesus Christ. Now today, I want to give you a mathematical formula to help you figure out if a group or a religion is a cult or not. I also want to give thanks to Watchmen Fellowship who gave me this idea. Now keep in mind, we're dealing exclusively with non-Christian cults. That is, groups claiming to be Christian that in actuality are not. So I hope you ate your Wheaties this morning and have your pencils in hand because here is the mathematical formula. Those four questions you want to ask yourself about any group you may be wary of or of a group that you never heard of and want to test out and see if they're legit. Here are the four questions. Number one, do they add to the word of God? Number two, do they subtract from the deity of Jesus Christ? Number three, do they multiply requirements necessary for salvation? And number four, do they divide the followers' loyalty between God and themselves? Let me repeat them. Do they add to the word of God? Do they subtract from the deity of Jesus Christ? Do they multiply requirements necessary for salvation? And four, do they divide the followers' loyalty between God and themselves? Let's look at test number one. Do they add to the word of God? This is maybe the most obvious red flag. Most cults are not satisfied with the Bible alone as their source of authority. They might fall into a few different camps regarding this. One group may say that the Bible is the word of God, but so is the Koran. So is the Hindu Vedas. So is the Bhagavad Gita. So is the Book of Mormon, etc. You see, the Bible was just one revelation from God that was good for its time period. But now we have a newer and complete revelation from God in these last days that fully explains the Bible and God's final requirements for salvation. One group that falls into this camp is the Unification Church, led by Reverend Sung Young Moon from Korea. Moon himself is believed by his group to be the second coming of the Messiah, and his book called Divine Principle is the latest and fullest revelation from God. I tell you, I have a copy of Divine Principle, and if you can't spot the blatant heresy in that book in five minutes or less, you need to do some serious praying. It is full of it. Another camp of cults will say the Bible has been corrupted. It has mistakes in it that need to be corrected. Therefore, our book clarifies the Bible and fixes its mistakes. The Mormons will fall partially into this camp. The eighth article of faith from the Mormon church says, We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Then it goes on to say, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God with no qualification at all. You see, the Bible has contradictions in it. It was corrupted during the time of the Great Apostasy, by the way, that never happened, and many precious books were lost to it. Therefore, we have all those lost books and are very happy to present them to you in the Book of Mormon. However, the Mormon Church also believes in a continuing revelation from God they have two other holy books apart from the Bible and the Book of Mormon that are regarded as scripture. They're called Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, which actually contradict the Book of Mormon, sometimes blatantly, but that's another study. Not only that, but the Mormon Church also has a living prophet. His name is Gordon B. Hinckley, whose words are more authoritative than any holy book they possess, and his revelation is final even if it contradicts the older revelation. What does Scripture say about adding to the Word of God? Does it give us any warnings? Well, it sure does. 
Proverbs chapter 30, 5 and 6 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Clearly, adding to the word of God is a serious sin and will demand strict punishment on those who do so. You might ask, why do these cults have these extra books? Well, thanks for asking. Well, it's simple, because you would never find their teachings in the Bible. No one would ever read the Bible and come to the conclusion that Jesus failed in his mission on earth to fully redeem mankind because he got himself crucified like the Unification Church teaches. Or that as Mormons teach, that men can become gods and procreate spirit babies in heaven for all eternity with his heavenly wife or wives. Who would read the Bible and come to that conclusion? Nobody would write. Now, careful, we have extra books too. We have books by Charles Swindoll, R.C. Sprawl, Billy Graham, etc. Aren't these added books to the Bible? Well, no. The ticket is that these books don't claim to be inspired by God. They're books to help us to understand biblical concepts and help us live a more full Christian life. Not one of these writers would say that their writings are inspired by God or that one must read these books in order to fully understand God's revelation to mankind. They don't claim to be the source of authority for Christians. Let's move to test number two. Test number two to see if a group is a cult. Ask this question. Do they subtract from the deity of Jesus Christ? I'd like to read from 2 Corinthians 11 verses 3 and 4. It says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, you may well put up with it. Wait, another Jesus? Yep, another Jesus. How many Jesuses are there anyway? Well, there's only one true one, but many, many false ones. In fact, there are probably as many Jesuses out there as there are McDonald's restaurants. The deity, the deity of Jesus Christ, that is the fact that Jesus is God, is vehemently attacked by the cults, maybe more so than any other teaching. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Jesus, teaching him to be the first created being by Jehovah God, also known as Michael the Archangel. The Mormon Church will give lip service to the fact that Jesus is God, but really teaches that Jesus is also a created being, born in heaven from a relationship between Heavenly Father and a mother, and is just one God out of many, since we all have the ability to become gods. In Mormon theology, Jesus is none other than the older spirit brother of Lucifer, who became the devil. The Christian scientist, led by Mary Baker Eddy, by the way, they have an extra book too, it's called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, they teach Jesus was only a man, a man who achieved a higher plane of thought or a Christ consciousness, whereby he taught that sin, sickness, and death were only illusions that need to be overcome by using mind over matter, and that Jesus didn't really die on the cross for our sins, since death is only an illusion, but he healed himself and overcame it. You know, I could go on and on with examples, but I think it's clear that there are many different Jesuses out there who cannot save you from your sin, but will damn you to eternal punishment if you believe in them. Jesus said in John 8:24, Unless you believe that I am, that's check out Exodus 3:14, God's name, I am, unless you believe that, you will die in your sins. The deity of Jesus Christ is attacked ferociously by the cults, and it's no wonder. 
Satan doesn't want you to believe in the real thing. He's a master counterfeiter. He's masquerading as an angel of light, deceiving multitudes into a big lie. He knows if you buy the lie, you are condemned with him for eternity. With that said, who is the real Jesus? Well, Jesus is Almighty God, the second person of the Trinity, who came in the flesh to save us from our sins by dying on the cross and arising bodily from the dead. What scriptures tell us this? What scriptures prove the deity of Christ? Well, I'll just give you a few of many. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Titus 2.13 Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll end our mathematical formula to test a religious group by and also end our study on the cults. Today is part four and the last part of Cults 101. We're going through a general study on the non-Christian cults who masquerade under the banner of Christianity, but in reality are perverting and deviating from Orthodox Christian beliefs. I know it can get confusing with all the different beliefs out there. You know, it's hard enough sometimes just understanding all the good, solid Orthodox beliefs, let alone getting a grasp on all the false ones, too. So to maybe make it a bit easier, last week we began looking at a four-part mathematical formula to test a religious group by to see if they're a cult. I'll repeat that formula for you now. Ask yourself these questions about the group. Number one, do they add to the Word of God? Number two, do they subtract from the deity of Jesus Christ? Number three, do they multiply requirements necessary for salvation? And number four, do they divide the followers' loyalty between God and themselves? Last week we looked at the first two parts, adding to the word of God and subtracting from the deity of Christ. Today we'll look at the third and fourth parts of the equation, and you'll be an expert cult buster after this. By the way, I say that in a bit of jest, because if you really want to get into apologetics, especially in the area of the cults, a prerequisite is to know and study good, solid biblical doctrine. Messing with the cults will challenge you and may even begin to sway you if you're not grounded first in your faith. Remember, the biblical warnings against deception are given over and over again to Christians, not unbelievers. So before you go out there and slay all those false teachings, make sure you do what 2 Timothy 2.15 says, and study to show yourself to prove to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, our third part of the equation to test a religious group by is to simply ask, do they multiply requirements necessary for salvation? Now, there's two types of religions out there. One says do, and the other says done. Every religion I know of other than Christianity is works-based. They all say, do, 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 and perhaps you'll be saved on Judgment Day. But Christianity says it's done, it's finished, the price has been paid. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, isn't doing works just such an integral part of our human nature that makes it so attractive to us? The world says nothing is free. You want it, you work for it, buddy. It seems so natural that we have to perform at a certain level in order to receive a reward. We study hard in school, we get an A. We work hard at our job, we get a raise. We work at our marriage, and we have a happy spouse. But Christianity doesn't work like this, does it? At least in order to obtain salvation. 
It's so hard for someone outside of the power of the Holy Spirit to understand this concept of grace. You know, it just makes no sense that we can just receive everlasting life by God's grace, working through our faith with no works necessary on our part. Now, I'm not in the easy believism camp that says if you walk down an aisle at church or, you know, raise your hand or say the sinner's prayer that you're automatically saved and you can go out and live it up in the world. That's not the kind of belief I am talking about. I would say that in Christianity, rewards are works-based. We will be judged according to our works to receive our rewards or lack of rewards. 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, which talks about the judgment seat of Christ, demonstrates this. But salvation is not based on works. Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. It's not something earned. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But the cults say, No, no, no. You need to work, and work hard if you want to make it. Nothing is free in the cults. Oh yeah, they'll all give lip service to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and say that salvation is a free gift. But they'll also say that we have to somehow become worthy of this gift. The Jehovah's Witnesses, perfect example of this. Ask a Jehovah's Witness if we're saved by works. You know, 9 out of 10 will probably say no. But ask them if if they need to continue to knock on doors and peddle watchtower and awake magazines around, or if they need to continue to go to meetings at the Kingdom Hall three times a week to have eternal life, and they're a little out of sorts answering you. You know, they should be, because their leaders in the Watchtower Society tell them contradictory things. Yes, salvation is a gift. And you better go out and work for it too. Huh? To relieve all doubt that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach a works-based salvation formula, I'll appeal to the Watchtower magazine, July 1st, 1947, which says, To get one's name written in that book of life will depend upon one's works. There you have it. Mormonism also will allude to salvation being a free gift, But if you really want to achieve full salvation and exaltation and become a god, you have to do the following things according to their own book called Gospel Principles. Are you ready for this? Take a deep breath. And here we go. We must be baptized and confirmed a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. We must receive the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. We must receive the temple endowment. We must be married for time and eternity. We must love and worship God. Love our neighbor. Repent of our wrongdoings, live the law of chastity, pay honest tithes and offerings, be honest in our dealings with others and with the Lord, speak the truth always, obey the word of wisdom, that means to abstain from coffee, tea, alcohol, and tobacco, search out our kindred dead and perform the saving ordinances of the gospel for them, keep the Sabbath day holy, attend our church meetings as regularly as possible so we can renew our baptismal covenants by partaking of the sacrament, Love our family members and strengthen them in the way of the Lord. Have family and individual prayers every day. Honor our parents. Teach the gospel to others by word and example. Study the scriptures. Listen to and obey the inspired words of the prophets of the Lord. Finally, each of us needs to receive the Holy Spirit and learn to follow His direction in our individual lives. Whoa! And people wonder why the suicide rate is so high in Utah? Well, there's the reason. You know, I'd be suicidal too. Cults love to appeal to James chapter 2 and say, Faith without works is dead. Yeah, faith without works is dead. But what does James mean by that? 
He's saying that if you say you have faith, but don't have works to prove it, you ain't got it to begin with. The manifestation of faith in a Christian's life is demonstrated by works. But he doesn't do those works to get saved. He does them because he's already saved. See the difference? Let's move on. Let's go to test number four to see if a group is a cult. Ask this question. Do they divide the followers' loyalty between God and themselves? Cults often present themselves as the only true church or the only true representation of Christianity to the world. When you're in a cult, there's no other group that teaches the full truth that God wants us to know. They have a corner on the market, and the cult becomes the member's messiah, dividing their loyalty between God and the group, or the cult leader, or the organization. For example, Reverend Moon from the Unification Church is quoted on March 23rd of 2004 as saying, In the context of heaven's providence, I am God's ambassador, sent to earth with his full authority. I am sent to accomplish his command to save the world six billion people, restoring them to heaven with the original goodness in which they were created. You know, Moonies are dedicated to Moon and his wife, who are referred to as their true parents. The Mormon Church, also called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, according to one of their scriptures, claims to be, quote, the only true and living church on the face of the whole earth, which I, the Lord, am well pleased. The Boston Church of Christ, also called the International Church of Christ, is a group that demands submission to the leader's authority to an extreme and has caused former members to need professional counseling to get their lives together after exiting the group. Actually, this group has been kicked off many college campuses because of their cultic-like practices and recruitment techniques. Well, in effect, what ends up happening in a cult group is that the leadership become, becomes the go-between between God and man, the direct channel of communication. But First Timothy 2.5 says that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not any group, not a prophet, not a church organization, but Jesus, the Son of God. Amen? But when you're in a cult, you're told that you must remain loyal to the group to ever have a chance of being saved. Loyalty is a must because the cult's directives are God's directives. To leave the cult is to turn your back on God himself and it's impossible to serve and please him outside of the parameters of the group. I quoted from the Watchtower magazine a couple of weeks ago which said, the December 1st, 1981 edition, it said, What is your attitude toward directives from the faithful and discreet slave, meaning themselves, loyalty should move you to be ready to obey? You know, we, we shouldn't be surprised at this stuff. This is nothing new. The Bible says in Galatians 2.4 that false brethren were secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Speaking again of these false teachers, again it says in Galatians 4.17 that they zealously court you but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. The false teachers don't have your good in mind, but are selfishly manipulating people to make them subjects of themselves. Second Peter 2, 18 and 19 says that they'll speak great swelling words of emptiness. And while they promise you liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So, to review our math formula to test a group by to see if they're a cult, ask four things. Do they add to the word of God? Do they subtract from the deity of Jesus Christ? Do they multiply requirements necessary for salvation? 
Do they divide the followers' loyalty between God and themselves? If you're interested in a copy of today's message, you can have a CD for free if you contact me by email or phone. You can email me at help at tower2truth.net. My phone is 610-513-5525. That's 610-513-5525. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network. 